This is exactly right. I'm in Williamsburg, Virginia, touring the old gallows where 18th century criminals were publicly executed. It has been the site of the final breaths for countless thieves, grifters, and murderers. In the summer of 1752, a convicted killer named John Sparks escaped the nearby jail by sawing the iron bars and bashing the guard over the head with a bottle. He was captured the next day and then quickly executed. The public jail in Williamsburg, like all jails, has a troubled history. That's what it would have looked like. Right here, this structure back over there? Yeah. So you guys, this is where they would hang people. What was the method? Was it the weight? In the 1800s, it was like the weight down. I think it was the weight, but I would double check with cash on that one. It's a terrible way to die. It's so much better to be dropped. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's brutal. That's historian and interpreter Nicole Brown. She and site supervisor Cash Earhart are giving me a tour of where so many people were hanged in this town's history. Cash gives us a little summary of how convicted criminals in the 1700s met their fate. And it's terrible. Well, there were two different methods, predominantly in the 1800s. Yeah. Do you know what method of hanging they would use? Um. The gallows here, you would be stood up in the back of the cart or the wagon uh, with the noose attached around your neck and suspended from the, the beam of the gallows and the slack would be removed from the rope. So the cart would be pulled out and the condemned would be left there to dangle under their own weight. Strangle. Yeah. I asked Cash if a person's size mattered, and it does. Um... So a lighter person, somebody who doesn't weigh a whole lot, it would likely take them much longer to expire than someone who was heavier. There's more weight pulling down on them. They would suffocate, uh, possibly even break their neck uh, in a shorter amount of time. But regardless, I mean, to have to think about that, think about your demise of like, am I heavy enough? Am I too light? Like that was probably traumatic. Trauma is the right word for this season. There are three controversial deaths in the story, and each of them contributed to a larger narrative, why the American Revolutionary War even began. You've likely never heard of any of these men, the ones who died. One died of natural causes, but his secrets shook the colonies and the crown. The second man died by a sword. And his murder triggered protests that frightened the upper class. And the third man died in a very mysterious way. This is a story about justice lost and then perhaps regained by some measure. It's the most interesting true crime case that you've never heard of that is extraordinarily well documented for what it is. It's a tragic story, very tragic. As you say, the the ripple effects of how many people, it just sort of goes out, how many people were caught in uh, in this murder. 
It's about the upstairs and the downstairs residents of Virginia, including those enslaved in the manor houses and the tobacco fields. And it's about the people who were determined to march toward war despite the very poor odds of winning. I think this is a very human story, just as people today feel pressure. People in the 18th century worry about their, their families, may actually take some desperate measures to protect their family, protect their reputations. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a crime historian and the author of All That Is Wicked and American Sherlock. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. This is our oldest story yet. For this season, we're in 1766 Williamsburg, Virginia, where the money is plentiful for a select few. Most of my work is in the 19th century, but this really is my favorite time period. America is not America yet. The Revolutionary War is brewing. The swords are drawn, but justice might be elusive because the killer is privileged. We call this season Entitled, And when we're talking about entitlement in a court of law, it means the same thing now that it did in the 1700s. Can your status in life help you avoid a legal punishment? Yes, of course it can. And it did in this case. First, let's start with a history lesson, and we'll also clarify some terms. We're less than a decade before the 1775 start of the American Revolutionary War between what were called the British colonies and Great Britain. Later, they would be called the United Colonies, but they weren't united in the years that we're talking about. They were still very separate. At this point, there were 13 colonies. My daughter just learned about them in school, so I had to quiz her for a test. The original colonies were Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. In 1607, more than a century and a half before our story starts, the colony of Virginia was the first to receive its charter from King James I. This gave it a special designation, the crown's first child in America. Robert Weathers is an actor and storyteller with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He says that in the mid-18th century, Virginia was the brightest jewel in England's crown. Charles II refers to Virginia as his loyal old dominion. And that loyalty is rooted in a general understanding that those who are in charge are supposed to be in charge. And they were in charge. The top 1 to 2% of the most prosperous people ran Virginia, the crown's most powerful colony. Virginia served as the king's prototype for how each of the other 12 colonies should evolve, with tax collectors who could accumulate wealth for England and control for the king. England's expansion was a priority for the crown. So Virginia is the largest, the wealthiest, the most populous of all the colonies. And I think a lot of Virginians would consider themselves to be the most British of all of the 13 colonies in North America. In 1766 America, there were loyalists, people who were loyal to England, and there were rebels, sometimes called patriots, the people who increasingly wanted independence from England. And then there was the crown, the king of England. There was tension between the three groups, the Loyalists, the Rebels, and the Crown. There always had been. 
Cash Earhart is a supervisor in the Department of Historical Interpretation of Colonial Williamsburg. He and Nicole Brown work together. I asked Cash about the difference between a patriot and a loyalist. He said that he avoids specifically using patriots and loyalists when he talks about the 18th century because they were subjective terms. Someone who was loyal to their country was a loyalist, but the patriots felt the same way. They were loyal. Sounds a bit like today. Who is loyal and who is patriotic? So I'll just stick with rebels. Back to 1766. There had already been skirmishes between loyalists and rebels in New York, and very soon they would collide and there would be so much bloodshed. But this story isn't about the war or even the fighting that led up to the war. Three men in Virginia would die tragically, painfully, before the war even began, all over entitlement. Two were members of the gentry class, One was a humble merchant with a huge group of loyal friends. Each death, in some ways, changed history. My kids and I are on a wagon drawn by two large horses as we travel across Old Williamsburg, Virginia during an impromptu tour. The Colonial Williamsburg Foundation has done an outstanding job reconstructing the town from the 18th century. Sites are still being excavated to resurrect history, and we're here close to the 4th of July, so there are people everywhere. Still, seeing the town recreated like this is really fascinating. And by the time we finish, I've got more questions that need answers. Julie Richter is a lecturer in early American history at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. I asked her about the socioeconomic makeup of Williamsburg in 1766, because remember, Virginia had been the richest of the American colonies. Let me start with like the social levels first, that Williamsburg and the colony of Virginia was home to some very prosperous, very comfortably rich economically comfortable, socially dominant and politically dominant families, often called the gentry, sort of the top four to 5% of the colony's population. That's another important term from this period that we've already mentioned, gentry. And then there's really even range within that group of people that there are some who are amazingly powerful amazingly prosperous, at least on paper, they look solid. And some people call them um, the super gentry. We'll talk a lot about the super gentry in this story, the richest of the rich in the richest colony in America. We'll visit the gentry's palatial homes, we'll talk about their seemingly perfect lives, and we'll discuss their tragic deaths. Virginia on the eve of the revolution is the largest, most populous, and most powerful of the 13 colonies that decide to declare their independence. Just and the, the wealth contained in Virginia is, is immense in the colonial period. The Declaration of Independence would be signed in 1776 when America was born. But in 1766, a decade earlier, the gentry were generally loyalists to the crown through and through. 
Kelly Brennan is a historian with the Old Williamsburg Foundation. She says that the town's elite often deferred to the king rather than try to forge their own identity because they were English, after all. They spent a lot of time, especially the established elite, mimicking and trying to base their entire existence on the English power structure. Robert Weathers says that the crown was in financial trouble after a major war. What happens is with the conclusion of the French and Indian War in 1763, the British government uh, racks up a debt of over 140 million pounds, which we might giggle at today, but it is a wild sum. That was an incredible amount of debt, more than $30 trillion today. And during the following years, the debt in England created an economic depression in the United Colonies. Historian Julie Richter says that to decrease the debt and mitigate the economic uncertainty, England did what most countries would do. It increased taxes on the colonies by a lot. The Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Townsend Act, the Declaratory Act, this whole series of pieces of legislation, none of the colonists liked this. And it wasn't just the taxes. Virginians deeply believed that they had the right to impose any tax on themselves. They believed that only they had that right, not the crown. And any taxes they levied should stay in Virginia, not go to England. Future founding father Patrick Henry began to push back publicly against the crown in speeches, but he was in the minority. There were the more moderate, maybe even conservative members of the, of the gentry who didn't want to push. When you start questioning parliament and questioning the king, you're questioning the whole social order. Sure. Uh, and that's a big deal. Declaring independence is a complete rejection of your social hierarchy with the king at the top of it. Just to be clear, these taxes were imposed against the United Colonies only, not the people in England. Cash Earhart says that this really upset the colonies, especially the rebels. There's a lot of instability that is starting to to show the fact that the American people are becoming a distinct people from their English brethren. But it's a very diverse group. You know, South Carolinians and, and, and New Englanders are, are as foreign to Virginia as, as France and Spain in some ways. We, we do more trade with France and Spain and their colonies than we have with, with Boston or New York or, or South Carolina. The Crown had given the colonies some rights from afar. They had set up their own governments and elected their own officials, but they were still ruled by the king. They paid higher taxes, and the Crown forced colonists to host British soldiers in their homes, providing them with a place to sleep and with food. Some colonists had trouble even feeding themselves, let alone soldiers. And now the Crown was threatening to tighten its rule on the colonies. And taking away rights that had already been granted is almost never a good idea. And when they see Parliament and the Crown begin to erode those rights that they have exercised here in America, in the case of Virginia, for over 150 years since they established their first colony and, and settlement at Jamestown, they see that as a threat. This is a foreign people the king, parliament, they don't come to America. Right. They aren't familiar with us. So a delineation between these two groups? Yeah. 
That might sound odd to call the English foreign people, but remember that it had been more than 150 years since the colonies were established. Most people in England had no idea what the colonies overseas were even like. In 1764, Parliament passed the sugar tax, which taxed sugar, molasses, and other products imported into the American colonies from areas in the Caribbean not controlled by the king. In 1767, Parliament passed the Townsend Acts, which taxed the colonies on glass, lead, paint, and tea, among other things. But the tax that seemed to upset people the most was the stamp tax in 1765, two years earlier. Robert Weathers offers a lesson on why the Stamp Act was so difficult for the colonists. It wasn't really about stamps. The stamp tax is uh, not a tax on stamps per se. It is a tax on paper goods. So anything paper, more or less, uh, requires a stamp. So you can think about things like pamphlets, newspapers, books, degrees from the college, even things, uh, as we point out a lot here at Colonial Williamsburg, like dice that come wrapped in paper and playing cards require the stamp. So the Stamp Act affected everyone in the colonies, rich and poor. Of course, the poor were the most affected. It's really obvious to people here in North America that this act is pinned by the wealthiest men in the wealthiest part of the empire who have no idea what Virginians actually can afford. This increase in taxes made life difficult for the average white citizen in Williamsburg. We'll talk more about the experiences of black people in Williamsburg later on because clearly they had a different experience than even the white servants had. There's actually a, a range of experiences in, in Williamsburg and anywhere in Virginia in the 1760s. There's been some economic depression after the end of the French and Indian War. There's great concern about the various pieces of legislation Parliament is approving to raise money to pay for the French and Indian War. The Stamp Act was passed by Parliament in London in 1765, a year before the deaths in this story would take place. The act was so unpopular that it didn't even last a year. But Parliament and the King still wanted to tighten England's grip on the colonies. The day that the Crown repealed the Stamp Act, it also passed the Declaratory Act. It was a declaration that Parliament had total power to tax the colonies, just like it did in Great Britain. By 1766, everyone in Virginia was concerned about the increased taxes and the increased financial burden on their lives and the lack of political power, even the gentry. So while the gentry are comfortable, they're, they're worried about an increased tax burden. The economic depression is hitting the middling and lower folks you know, harder because they have less in reserve. Some of the colonists protested loudly. Others did so in other ways. If you don't treat us the way we feel we should be treated, we'll stop buying this long list of goods from you, and you'll realize that you actually you need us. Some of the colonists refused to buy goods that were coming in from England. They hoped that would send a strong message to the king, but it really didn't. That, that was successful a few times. But it was hard for Virginians to hold to this agreement. They are supposed to buy all of their goods from English merchants. So if you pledge not to buy material, 
you have little material to make new clothes. The colonists were furious because they were being taxed by England, but at the same time, they had no representation in the English government. The Crown could pass virtually any tax it wanted on the colonists because there was no one fighting for their rights. It's true that they were represented in their own colonies, but not in England, not with a seat in Parliament. And as 1766 approached, the colonists who weren't from the upper echelons of society were fed up with the gentry, both back in England and here in the colonies. We, the colonists, the the establishment in Virginia, we haven't changed. It's Parliament. They're changing the rules on us. They're infringing upon our royal charters from the Crown that say we get to have these rights as British subjects. We get to elect our representatives to the legislature. This is Parliament that is trying to usurp our rights and change things. It's strange to think that the Revolutionary War didn't begin with ideas that were actually revolutionary. Most of the colonists didn't want more rights. They just wanted their old rights back. So in, in, in one sense, the revolution is a very radical idea, creating an independent nation. But what they were trying to preserve are very conservative ideas. They want to keep things the same as they had been for decades previously. And then they start to evolve. You, you see the expansion of voting rights. You see the disestablishment of Uh, the official church in Virginia. By 1766, rebels had begun plotting against the crown, laying the groundwork for a war. So-called commoners in the colonies had already eyed the members of the gentry class with jealousy and suspicion. The gentry could do whatever they pleased with impunity, it seemed. But now the question is, would that be true in this story? Before we get to those controversies, the sudden death of a powerful figure would stun England's most important colony. Williamsburg in the 18th century was exciting. A city and a colony with lots of money. Williamsburg is is a bustling city in the 1760s, close to 2,000 permanent residents. Approximately half of the city's permanent population are people of color, both enslaved and free blacks. You would have heard multiple languages being spoken if you visited Williamsburg. It's a a busy, I know some people laugh when I say this cosmopolitan place. One of Williamsburg's most prominent residents was Colonel John Chisel. He was born in 1710 in Hanover County, Virginia, an area now known as Scotchtown. His father, Charles, was an immigrant from Scotland, but he was not a typical Scottish merchant. Charles Chisel was a land spectator and a plantation owner. He cultivated tobacco on his family's land, and he was a local politician. When Charles died, he left his only child, John, more than 50,000 acres. Over the years, John acquired more and more assets, and his political influence grew. Eventually, he also invested in mine operations, which could be very lucrative. The Chisel name really meant something in Scotchtown and Williamsburg. 
In fact, his large manor house still sits in Williamsburg, a sprawling testament to his standing in 1700 society. Now, the politics. Chisel was a staunch loyalist. He was committed to the crown. He also was a politician. Chisel had been a member of the House of Burgesses. Another quick history lesson. The House of Burgesses was the first legislative body in the United Colonies that was democratically elected. It held its first meeting in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. Some of the most important men in the colonies served in the House, founding fathers like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Patrick Henry. John Chisel was a Burgess from 1756 until 1758 when he was in his 40s. Chisel was articulate, affluent, and gifted at business, it seemed. But in many ways, Colonel Chisel's life was gilded. Historians Julie Richter and Kelly Brennan explained that he wasn't technically a colonel. It was more of an honorary title. Each county had its own militia, Mm -hmm. and the titles were often honorific. Colonel Chisel tells us that, yeah, he was active in his local militia. They would have drilled near their courthouse several times a year, but, you know, active fighting, most likely not. You know, during the French and Indian War, Peyton Randolph gathered a group of men, and he was going to lead them to western Pennsylvania, and they never left the colony of Virginia. <laughs> I don't know if Chisel was in that group or not, but most of the elite, anybody like a colonel is not, did not see active fighting. And usually it's going to be our lieutenant governor is handing out titles. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know how like, like there's the, United. yes, it's like there's yeah. exactly, it's exactly like that. It's that they can't actually build their own aristocracy. So what they do is the governor gives out like these really kind of stupid and it's usually colonel and it's not and they're technically made colonel of something i don't remember what it is for him in 1736 john chisel married a woman named elizabeth randolph who was five years younger elizabeth hailed from one of the most famous families in the colonies a french traveler once wrote no family in colonial virginia was more prominent or more powerful than the randolphs They were one of the wealthiest dynasties in what would become America as we know it today. When writing Moby Dick in 1851, Herman Melville cited the Randolphs as the quintessential old established family in the land. In the 1700s, many of the landed gentry and upper classes of Virginia were connected. And now John Chisel was connected to the Randolphs through marriage. Janice Kennedy is an interpreter and site supervisor with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. What you have to understand is in this town, you know, the the gentry, the Randolphs represent the gentry. Some say 2%, some books say 5%, but a very small percentage of the town's population who are the very, very wealthy. They own the large homes, the large tracts of land, and they sit in the government offices. And the Randolphs have always been involved in government. They are making the rules and laws for everyone. Elizabeth and John started their lives in Scotchtown at his family's sprawling eight-room house. For several years, Elizabeth wasn't the lady of the house because Chisel's mother remained alive until 1750. Between 1737 and 1752, John and Elizabeth Chisel had four children, all girls, Susanna, Mary, Lucy, and Elizabeth. No boys, which was a problem for the longevity of the Chisel's name. It certainly made it harder on me to find relatives today. The family eventually moved to Williamsburg, probably because of John Chisel's business dealings. 
He partially owned a tavern in town, and by then he was a member of the House of Burgesses. Chisel was described as arrogant and quick-tempered, while his wife was considered kind. She had taken in her sister's two sons when their parents died. She was also very religious. An acquaintance described her as a most amiable lady. From her door, the needy were never sent empty away. Elizabeth seemed to tolerate her husband's fits, as many 18th century wives would. Now let's talk about John Chisel's inner circle. The most important ally he had was a man named John Robinson. He will be a key to this case. So my surname is Robinson, and um, I suppose I was in my late teens when my grandfather gave me a book um, all about the Robinsons and their 150 years they spent in the Americas, particularly in Virginia and New York. Simon Robinson knows a lot about this story because he is one of John Robinson's descendants. I was aware of uh, my four greats grandfather called Beverly Robinson, and he had uh, an older brother called John Robinson, who was the speaker and treasurer of the Virginia House of Burgesses. Simon says that John Robinson was a loyalist, of course. Clearly, the Robinsons were were very much of the loyalist persuasion, even though they'd not been residents in England for over a hundred years. There was regular travel and education that took place in England, and you know their bread was buttered on the on the loyalist side, keeping in with the the crown. But John Robinson was so much more than a politician. I mean, it's difficult for us to imagine how that sort of new style aristocracy worked in Virginia. And you had John Robinson, who was the son of, well, his his father had been president of the, the Council of Virginia, and his grandfather had been the immigrant to Virginia in the mid-17th century. So they'd created a, um, a long line um, at that stage of landowners, highly respected, seen as pillars of the community. The Robinsons were part of the upper echelons of society in Virginia, and John Robinson had been speaker and treasurer for more than 20 years. So this was a, you know, a really significant person in the colony. Whilst he was speaker, he lavished praise on George Washington for his role in the French Indian Wars. You know, all of these families knew each other very intimately. But John Robinson didn't agree with George Washington's later ideas on politics. And he was also very critical of another young member of the House of Burgesses. Patrick Henry, who ends up being uh, showing up in a few spots, he's one of these firebrands and he's, he's coming from further out. He does have gentry ties and he actually has a tie to, a sort of a tie to chisel. So he's the guy who, when it comes to the Stamp Act, he, he's pushing politically these kind of radical ideas about tell, you know, basically telling the king and parliament, we're not doing this. We are not doing this. Patrick Henry's most famous speech is when he proclaims, give me liberty or give me death. But this one was delivered 10 years earlier. It was 1765, and Patrick Henry was sitting in a session in the House of Burgesses in Richmond. He eyed Speaker John Robinson. Henry rose, 
and began his attack on the Stamp Act and the British Parliament's right to tax the colonies. And he gives this speech that I think is better than liberty or death. I think it is actually one of the best quotes at the very end of it of the revolutionary period, like full stop. It's known as the Caesar Brutus speech. So this one takes place here in Williamsburg in 1765. And the most sort of famous part of it is Caesar had his Brutus, Charles I, his Cromwell, and George III. Patrick Henry was insinuating that the King of England could be assassinated for his decisions, just like Caesar. And everybody jumps up in the House of Burgesses and starts screaming. And they're yelling, it's treason, it's treason, it's treason. Exactly, I was going to say, and John Robinson's yelling the loudest. John Robinson was furious, while Patrick Henry seemed pleased. He spoke again and declared something that seemed to be pretty threatening. If this be treason, make the most of it. And that's a big message to be sending to these guys, especially when you're looking at somebody like Robinson. Some rebels believed that the Stamp Act was their last stand, and they wanted to pressure the Crown to reverse it. It seemed like war was coming. I asked Robert Weathers about the impact the Stamp Act had. Is the Stamp Act the first major volley? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, What kicks off the War for Independence generally is regarded uh, as the signing of the Treaty of Paris and the debt racked up from the war, and the stamp tax is the first friction, you know, the real friction between North America and Great Britain. This friction would continue to build, but we're still a decade before the war because many of the powerful, including John Chisel, didn't want things to change at all. It had taken generations to build their status in society, and they were determined to maintain it for the next generation. Chisel is part of the elite, the old the, guard, the right? old guard, the very the very top of it, of establishment society. One of his homes, of his several houses, one is here in the capital in Williamsburg. All of his daughters, they make very excellent matches. They, they, They stay in that strata of society. Remember how the members of the gentry continued to stay powerful for generations? They married each other. John Chisel married a Randolph, and now he needed one of his daughters... Susanna, to marry someone just as powerful. For Chisel, it is really important that his daughter had married. It doesn't matter what the age difference was. It didn't matter if, you know, he had crawled out of the dismal swamp. As long as the guy was gentry and powerful. I mean, we know that he was ridiculously powerful. She's talking about John Robinson. John Chisel either convinced or commanded his young daughter to marry a man who was older than her own father. I'd say with... Chisel and John Robinson, for him to marry off his 19-year-old daughter to a 54-year-old man who's exceedingly powerful I'm, and one has already has business relationships, I personally question how much free will was in existence for, uh, for, for the bride. Yeah, I'd agree. I doubt that 19-year-old Susanna had any choice. In 1759, she would become John Robinson's third wife. And now John Chisel was the father-in-law of the most powerful and most dangerous man in Virginia. Robinson and Chisel were now grafted together by marriage. So there was a, 
a relationship by marriage between the brother of my four greats grandfather and Chisel. And they were also in business together. Um, John Robinson and John Chisel had invested in various schemes, including a mining operation. And so they were very much intertwined. If you've listened to past seasons of Tenfold, you'll likely remember that sometimes powerful families becoming intertwined doesn't work out so well. We told you another story set in Virginia about a family feud between the Witchers and the Clements. And along the way, I learned that reputation was everything to people in Virginia. Everything. I asked Janice Kennedy about the joining of families in Virginia through marriage. It's very important as part of that picture of success and permanence and family. And it helps us to create that societal picture about you, that status. And it's a thing that's not going to be looked at lightly. Even if there's difficulty there, and we know there's difficulty in those situations, they find a way to deal with it, but they don't ever, um, they might separate and go different spaces, different places. But the legal aspects of it, there's so much tied into that. Your value, your inheritance, your power is all tied into that. By 1766, the Robinsons and the Chisels were certainly intertwined, but no one had any idea how intertwined they'd become until it was too late. In this book that my grandfather gave me, I learned about what was called the Robinson Scandal or the Robinson Affair, where in his role as speaker and treasurer, he had a lot of power, he had access to money, and there'd been a, um, an economic shock. The Robinson Scandal was just the beginning Sometimes we don't find out what our loved ones were really doing with their lives, both good or bad, until after they are dead. On May 10th, 1766, John Robinson lay in his bed, crying out in agony and clutching his ribs. The pain radiated throughout his body. His wife, Susanna, was by his bedside. John Robinson seemed to be dying at the age of 61. John Chisel fretted about his son-in-law, and not just because he respected him as a relative and a powerful politician. Robinson was key to Chisel's reputation in Virginia. And as Robinson lay in his bed, clinging to life, the Speaker of the House of Burgesses kept a dark secret. It could ruin the Crown's most important, most prosperous colony. It was a secret that could also ruin John Robinson's family if anyone found out and no one could have predicted how the story would end. Three deaths and many more secrets. Did someone get away with a crime just because they were wealthy? And I think that's a question, isn't it? Do you think the law applies to you, or do you think you're above it? On this season of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. Are we starting to call it a divided nation? Well, yeah, I mean, if you've ever seen the cartoon that Benjamin Franklin drew of a snake chopped into pieces and underneath it says, unite or die, there is no common American identity. The elite of Virginia deeply needed to display who they were. You were honorable if you had money. You were honorable if you could be a bountiful host. I mean, just having that key relationship fall away with the death of Robinson, that was all immediately a shock. 
Then the unfolding financial scandal, that taint would have been on chisel. They're all in there. They're all got their fingers in the pie. It's like all of a sudden, you know, the flashbulb went off and everybody's caught bad. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't make the gentry look good. If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available on Audible now. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my books, American Sherlock and All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producer Jason Whaling, Senior Producer Alexis Amorosi, Consulting Producer Kyle Ryan, Researcher Nicole Brown, Sound Designer Eric Friend, Composer Curtis Heath, Artwork Nick Toga, Executive Producers Georgia Hartstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. <laughs>